Hey everybody, this is Mike Van Meter and welcome to the Mike Van Meter Show. And this is your one-stop shop for everything having to do with conservatism, the Constitution, liberty, freedom, and frankly just... Uh, advice on how you should live your life, I think. But uh, but that's just me. <laughs> but I know that if you're listening to this podcast, you, you are freedom-loving and you want the government to help you and certainly not get in your way. And today I'm excited to have again with me, Steve Maxwell, running for sheriff down there in Spotsylvania County, uh, County a little bit just south of where I am right now. And I'm really excited because Steve is a great, great candidate. And um, today we're going to be talking a bit about the Constitution, because I think sometimes we have to be reminded of the Constitution. And, um, you know, really the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights is a, you know, it's a guideline for how, what the government needs to do for you, and but more importantly, what they can't do to you. And that's uh, for those that are uh, historians and political science majors uh, in this country, you, you understand that that's a very unique concept in world history. We are the first nation that created such a thing. I mean, you're not going to go to different countries and, and have a, a bill of rights. It just doesn't happen. And a constitution, the way that, that we have it, doesn't exist. And the office of sheriff, which Steve is running for, is actually one of those offices that um, is truly an office that has a tremendous amount of power, but is answerable directly to the people. It's a constitutional office. And so uh, Steve's going to be talking to us about that today. And then we're going to talk about the opiate epidemic, uh, namely fentanyl and, and drugs, because he has a strong background in that. So with that, I want to welcome back to the program, Steve Maxwell. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me again. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. And I, and I really appreciate uh, how generous you've been with your time. And when I go around the country and I talk to people, for example, um, Steve, I'm going to, let me just kind of set this up a little bit. I, last night, I was talking to a person that uh, works for an intel agency. And we were actually talking about problems with the, the, the problems with the FBI. And I've, I've talked about that extensively on other episodes of this show. So I won't relitigate that. But uh, this individual asked me, you know, what, what did I think the problem with the FBI is today? And I'll tell you what I think the problem is, and we'll kick it over to you so you can explain how this fits in with the role that you're going to be in. The the big problem with the FBI is that it really wears um, two hats, and that's a uh, a law enforcement hat and then a counterintelligence hat. And at one time, when I went in the FBI, we were a law enforcement agency that dabbled in counterintelligence. And then after Mueller took over, it became an organization that does counterintelligence that dabbles in law enforcement. And that's a very dangerous yes. time. It, yes. it's, it's so dangerous because what people don't realize is in a law enforcement role, we are sworn law enforcement officers and we have to apply the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to everything that we do. When you're working Absolutely. counterintelligence, on the other hand, that's not law enforcement and you can make suppositions. You can, um, you know, for example, you know, here, here's the here, here's the way to put it. In law enforcement, you say a crime was committed, right? So there's a crime, right? And then we build evidence to prove that that person committed that crime. Counter intel, Correct. you say, hey, I think a crime might be committed, and I think a guy like that would do something like that. And then you go and you try to build a case proving that that a person like that 
would do something like that. It's it, you know Absolutely. I'm overgeneralizing, yeah. but um, it, it, is that a fair assumption? And and the problem right now, Steve, is that the American public is starting to think that law enforcement, whether it's the FBI or any other agency, and to include the agency that you're going to be heading up, um, they don't trust it. It's kind of like we go um, uh, we go looking at people and then start looking for the crime, and that's not good, is it? No, no, Mike, and you're right. It's, it's, I I notice that more and more when I'm out talking to people, uh, they feel that law enforcement anymore is being lumped into that, um, same cudgel of, of, uh, of an institution. And I remember growing up being brand new in law enforcement. In fact, what brought me to my federal, you know, I always had a, uh, career goal of being a federal agent. Um, and I remember as a young police officer serving with a, uh, uh, officer in a town called Zanesville, Ohio, he was with the uh, Zanesville police department. He was selected for the FBI to go become an agent. And I was so envious of him. And, and I met with him years later, um, just recently within the last several years. And, and he related to me, um, when he, he retired, just because he saw that change in that federal agency of going more toward an intelligence gathering agency. Um, and I think we were there. You're right in that, that it's being used in that direction because, you know, we have the CIA that's used to gather intelligence on foreign actors, right? And they're required to do that. But we've never really had anyone other than the FBI able to do that internally within the United States. And so I think they've geared themselves more to that, uh, to the downfall of the rise in crime we've had on a national scale and, you know, resources that could be uh, being utilized from a federal level to help uh, on local, the local scale. Um, Since I'm running for sheriff, I can use that as the example. You know, there are federal monies and resources that could be available and task forces and so forth to help fight um, crime on a county scale and statewide scale. And I think that's being utilized in areas that it just wasn't intended for. And the public is seeing that and it's helping cause this mistrust um, in that community. And, you know, the the community, and not to pile on the FBI, but the the people that I'm talking to are frustrated because they look around themselves, you know, they look around their communities and they see problems that are going unaddressed, like the fentanyl epidemic, human trafficking, people coming across, I mean, just pouring across the border, many of whom are on the known suspected terrorist list. And, um, you know, who knows, you know, what kinds of criminals and mental health issues some of these folks have. There's completely not, you know, not being vetted, but yet they see the FBI spending time on things that most people in the public don't, don't, it, it, it's not important to them. It, it's not, um, and I and I don't want to relitigate the whole January six issue, but right. I don't think that most Americans look at that as being the number one problem in this country, no. and and a a wise use of the resources of the FBI. And but we could even extrapolate that to you know uh, local law local law enforcement. You know the the question is: Are we utilizing our police forces? the way that they should be. Are we concentrating them into the areas that truly are important to the health and safety of the the, the public? I mean, what's, what's sort yeah, of your absolutely. take on that? Yes. 
No, I, I would agree with that. We, um, I have seen a change in the years and I started my career, you know, in 1983 next year would mark a, uh, my 40th anniversary when I started my career. Um, and I started actually as an undercover narcotics agent, the sheriff of my, the county that I lived in, um, actually swore me in, uh, to go as an undercover drug so, agent. So I, I began my career, um, in that field. I became a student in studying that. And I spent several years, um, locally in undercover narcotics work. Um, when I went into the military, I was recruited by CID in the army, U S army criminal investigations division. And I, uh, in their undercover, uh, narcotics task force. Um, so I, I have, uh, have extensive background and knowledge of, um, you know, in that particular field. And I see the resources that have been taken away uh, from uh, things in local uh, narcotics trafficking, federal narcotics trafficking into these other areas that you had referenced earlier and to the detriment of the local communities, you know, um, People don't realize how important it is maintaining our borders in a secure fashion and legal fashion. Um, what it's doing uh, in the narcotics trade. The biggest example I can give you is with what you're talking about in fentanyl. In the days when I was in the 80s, we all were familiar with the crack ed epidemic, right? You and I started our careers. We you know, crack was the thing and, and what people talked about, uh, what Joe Biden actually helped uh, sculpt with uh, unfair uh, practices when it came to jailing people with crack versus powdered cocaine. Um, but today, uh, you know, what we used to go out and find local drug dealers who were going out and, and making their own uh, methamphetamines and things like that. Um, you know, thank goodness you don't see that anymore. It saved a lot of lives. It was a very dangerous thing when they would make uh, methamphetamines locally and the, the chemicals that were used. But it's become so cheap anymore and because it's so porous coming across our borders that you don't find law enforcement doing that. And, and, I, and I bring that up because when you would find someone in, uh, making methamphetamines or making their own drugs, a lot of times when you made an arrest in that field, you actually had an impact on the amount of drugs that then would be available within your community. Well, now with the open borders that we have and as cheap as, as the narcotics coming across the borders have become, you you don't seem local uh, task forces and local communities don't seem to have that same large of an impact because it's so readily available. Um, and and it's just to me been incredulous that that the federal government has taken such a back seat and allowed that to happen. And so as hard as a local community can work, and you can only put so much money, um, and your resources into fighting that kind of crime. And as we all know, there's other things that, you know, that addiction leads to. And, and you know, we can debate uh, with people all day uh, the advantages of, of alternate means versus incarceration when it comes to addictions. But when I'm, I'm talking about the actual traffickers, the dealers, the people that prey on 
others for monetary gain through those narcotics. We just don't see that impact because it's just so readily available from foreign sources. And I, in my experience, in the years that I've dealt in that, I have to wonder that is that by design? You know, is foreign actors, is this a way for foreign countries to weaken our um, internal systems? You know, I don't have an answer for that. I'm just posing that more, I guess, of a question than it is a, an answer. But there's the solutions can be fairly simplistic if we just apply them, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you say that. Um, <clears throat> I actually had written down to myself a note to do a podcast on fentanyl. And the, the, the title of the podcast, and I may still do it, is Fentanyl. Mm -hmm. Was it planned? Was it an accident or was it an attack? Yeah. And, yes. and the reason why, and that's not Mike being a, a conspiracy theorist, I no, actually no, have no, had no. the reason why I decided to do a podcast on that is because I get that asked that repeatedly. Hey, do you think that this is a way? Um, is this a way for the Chinese, in particular, a way to weaken us? Because when you see what I see every day at the hospital, you know, coming through in the in the detox unit, in the devastation of fentanyl. And folks, if if you don't have any firsthand experience with fentanyl, I am telling you, it is bad. Uh, I mean, I knew before terrible. I started working at yes. the hospital, I knew I knew it was bad before I started working there. And when I started working in the hospital, my jaw dropped. I did not, yes. I, even I, with my background, did not realize how bad it was. And yes. the, it, it, the only way I can put it to you, Steve, is if you spent a night with me in the unit that I work in, by the end of the night, you'd be pissed off. It pisses yes. you off that our government, federal, state, local, are not doing anything everything to stop this and the fact that we are making zero effort on the border to stop fentanyl coming across it, it's criminal it, it's criminal yes. and if you disagree yeah, with that. me come spend no, a night no. with me i don't mean you but i mean yeah. the, the public yeah. but uh, it comes spend a night with me in the detox unit and then and then have that conversation with me right and and no i agree with you mike in fact um you know and, and again i i, I don't want to harpen back on the, you know my experiences um, that's not my purpose but I just want people to understand the tragedy of what fentanyl has become in our country and you know we, we thought the crack epidemic was bad right we changed here we are and Biden was one of the first ones you know to change the laws all for you know this terrible monster called crack but crack was no more than, you know, no more uh, dangerous to our society than powdered cocaine, you know, in my days and, and experience. But yet we, we changed laws. We did all things. But what are we doing for fentanyl, which is a hundred times? And again, I'm using that loosely. I'm not a chemist and I'm not, you know, a, a physician. So I'm not, you know, trying to over exemplify the, the, the chemical makeup of the two drugs, but I'm just saying in my experiences, what I've seen, we've changed, we changed federal laws for, for cr the crack scourge, but what have we done for fentanyl? We've allowed it to, to become more. We've, we've continued to allow it to pour across our borders and done nothing for it. And so I'm not saying I agree with you. I'm not trying to be the conspiracy theorist, but you have to wonder why was that so important back in the 80s when this 
you know, terrible, terrible thing that's hit our uh, society, our economy, our social structure. What are we doing as a country to battle that? This is literally a, a, a war on a drug that other countries are spewing into our country. Yeah, and you know what? Is I'm I'm sitting here talking with you. Um, listen to this. I just googled this fentanyl versus heroin because we all know uh, how bad heroin is. It's always been like that. I remember years yeah, ago yeah. in a treatment center. Um, you know, you you get the you know alcoholics would come into detox centers, and occasionally you get oh heroin. Oh my gosh! Well, that's that's hardcore. Right. That's hardcore right. heroin, right? So listen right. to this. You Google it fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that is up to, listen to this, Steve, up to 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. Up to 50 times stronger than heroin. And, uh, you know, when you and I were growing up, the heroin was like the thing. I mean, even <laughs> hardcore drug addicts are like, yeah. don't do heroin. You do that, you're done. Yeah, they stayed away from heroin, right? Yeah, like, Nobody wanted to do that. I mean, it was, yeah. It's it was, like you no, do it once it was, and you're done. This is yeah, yeah. 50 it, times stronger. Death. Yes, instant death. Everybody thought heroin, you would just OD on the minute you, the minute you crossed over into that heroin field when we were growing up, you were, it was a, a death sentence. And, and, you know, and so, uh, and you're right now. And when you think of that a hundred times worse, but yet we're, what are we doing about it? What laws are we changing to battle fentanyl? And I have, I have not, and I, and forgive me, I don't know the name of it, but there is a new synthetic that has been hitting the scene that is even more potent than fentanyl. And it is a yeah. pure foreign substance. And, and it's not something that again, um, an, an addict would, would even think about wanting to take, but, but, um, in our, and again, growing up in the business and, in of, uh, battling drugs with what you and I did for a living, you know, we think, and, and I think as a business owner, I've owned a business for a long time and, and, uh, helped with business owners and, and, and their businesses and think, why would you want to, you know, uh, business 101, right? Why take away your business, which is what fentanyl does. It kills your customer base. Why are you doing, why, what's the benefit, right? The first thing we always ask in any investigation, who benefits? So who would benefit from literally killing your customer base? Well, look at, the, look at who is flooding the market with that kind of drug. Well, and you even you can even extrapolate it out to even marijuana. This this incessant incessant push to legalize marijuana, um, and I always ask people this all the time. Oh, marijuana is harmless. It's harmless. Oh, really? So if you called an Uber, and the Uber driver rolled up to your house, and you got in the back seat, and the guy's up there hitting a bong pipe, <laughs> yeah. would you have that guy yeah, drive yeah. you to the airport? Hey, right. how about you get to the airport and you get on the plane yeah. and you look up and the pilot's yeah. hitting a bong pipe. Right? Would you? Uh, no. You know, yeah, yeah. Take your kids. You know, you drop your kids off at the kindergarten line at school in the morning, and all of a sudden you see the teacher hitting that bong. Do you, do you want to leave your kid at school? No, nobody in their right mind would. Right? But no, but but no. what's happened is we've we've so normalized it. And Correct. now I'm yes. not comparing marijuana yes. to fentanyl. Don't get me wrong. But this but but it dumbs you down and it, and it mellows Absolutely. you out. You are definitely not your, your potential. And so I think that Steve, you raise a good point. Who benefits from this? 
Is it planned? Right. Now, I, you know, we can speculate on that all day long. All I know is that me running for the state legislature and you running for sheriff, I, I, I can't. You know, it's not in my lane to to go after who who's benefiting from it. I have my theories. I have you know my speculation as to what it is. Right. But I but here's what I do know though. I I kind of try to lead from where I stand, and I know this. I look around me and I don't see my government. That's federal and state. I do not see our leaders doing everything they can within their powers to do something about it. I just don't see it. No, you're, you, and, and that's exactly right, Mike, which, which is one of the things that I talk about quite a bit. And, 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 you know, I, I'm, I, here I am going to get back on, on the political bus again, but um, I, the, the reason why, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I'm excited to run with people like you and Mike Allers and, and other on a political scale is because it's an opportunity for us in law enforcement. You know, you, you hear politicians all the time say, Oh, I'm pro law enforcement. I'm, I back the blue, but they don't really work hand in hand because they don't understand what it truly is like to work on the street and work with law enforcement. And you do. And things like this scourge of, of narcotics that's coming across our border and, and entering our commonwealth, you you really would understand and be able to w- work with you know us and and local law enforcement and and that's that's why I'm excited to run you know in this you know team of people that have that background and truly are willing to back up what they say when they say that they. They are pro law enforcement. So yeah, and and um, I'll tell you what, I'll take it a step. One of the groups that I really really like is a group called um, AVV or American Veterans Vote, and um, uh, Daniel Gade actually has another group that he's he's working with that really promotes the idea that veterans and and people who've been in service, whether it be EMTs, firefighters, police officers, nurses, yeah. um, you know, doctors, run for office because. Uh, really, when you when you talk about the public health and safety, these are the people that have been on the front lines of that. So my opponents, um, and I'm and I'm not I'm not. Listen, uh, I know who my opponents are right now, and I'm not even going to name them because uh, I don't know who's going to win the primary. There is uh, there's more than one, so there'd be a primary, and I'm not disparaging them. And I'm not disparaging sure. anyone that sure. hasn't served. I want to make that very, very clear. I'm very respectful of, you know, uh, my hat's off to anybody that throws. I mean, you and I both know that this political game is nasty. And uh, to my yeah. Democrat yeah. Uh, opponents, you know what? I'll show them respect, too. They're, they're, it's hard for them, just like it's hard for me. But what, one thing I am just going to say, and this is not a put down, it's just a fact, that, you know, when you talk about backing the police or sir, you know, helping the police, you can give that lip service and you can um, you can say that, but you don't really know what that means. And I can tell you right yes. now, if I'm talking to a chief of police, if I'm talking to a state trooper, if I'm talking to a federal agent, if I'm talking to a sheriff, yeah, uh, and and you're the same way. When I sit down and I talk about a, a program, I know it's possible. I know it's not possible, and I know what we can do in balancing that out with the other demands that, cause I know the demands of a police department in a sheriff's office in an yes. agency and you do too. And so it's yes. not just lip service. I can sit down with a sheriff and have an adult conversation about, you know, a plan and how can we implement this knowing that you have about a thousand other things that you have to do in addition to that. And not Correct. everybody does and, understand yeah, that. Yeah. No, no, they think it's well, because a lot of people believe it's just like TV, you know, and, and, um, and, it, it, nothing could be further from from the truth. 
you know, what the demands of law enforcement has. And I'll go back. I spent a majority of, of my career in the investigation field. Um, but, you know, I loved being on the road and, and, you know, those demands of, of road deputies and road officers who, who deal in the trenches of that every single day, um, you know, and, and the demands of an administration, whether it's a sheriff or chief of police or someone in an administration that has to continuously find the resources to help support those uh, people with what they do. It's just, it's just amazing. And it is, it's hard work and my hat's off again, I'm the same thing with my opponent. Uh, I, I never take away the good things that, that they do, but, um, you know, I understand what it takes and I believe that the skill set that I have is just going to set us apart to make it even better. Nothing says, you know, what we've, we've had in this country, same in Virginia with, with the things you're going to face. There are a lot of laws and things in, in that we have in Virginia that are good that you should do, but, but that's not to say that, you know, we can't do better and there's nothing wrong with doing better. I don't believe in the status quo. I look at government like I did my business. You know, I was successful in business. You know, I started a business as a, a, a in a private investigation firm, believe it or not, Mike, and I don't know why I'm getting off on that, but I started that with $83 in my pocket. And I rose within several years and had a pretty significant income with it and kept that business um, intact until I uh, began my federal career in 2017. And I could tell you, I run, I would look at government just like a business and the fact that you've got to move forward. If you're staying stagnant, you're losing. So why not take the good things that we've done and just continue to make it better? And I, I, I feel that the people are looking for that right now. They're just looking for, for better solutions. We, you know, we've, we've come from a good place, but things have changed i.e. what we're talking about now, fentanyl being worse than the other drugs we've dealt with and the things that we have to face now, I believe uh, you and other people that are running for office currently are in a better position to help Virginians face these challenges now than what we currently have in office. Oh, no doubt. And and I'll, I'll tell you too, why is this important? You know, and th- this is what we want to do on this this podcast and you know, when I'm on the campaign trail is the so what factor. So you're, right. you're Joe Blow out there on the street and I'm talking to you about my campaign and Steve's talking to you about their campaign. And you say to me, hey, Mike, I get it. Fentanyl is a big deal, but you, underst- you got to understand, I don't do drugs. So this isn't an issue for me. Well, it actually is an issue for you because, um, well, let me just give you one example that was brought to my attention last week. I had a young person come up to me and say, hey, uh, we were at a bar and, uh, you know, we were, you know, th- these are, you know, people in their young 20s and we're at a bar. It was a bunch of us, you know, the, you know, and we're, we're just having this social hour. And uh, my girlfriend gets up. This is a guy telling me this. My girlfriend gets up and she buys a round of drinks for all of us. And, um, but it's more than she can carry. So she she drops off some drinks. She goes back to the bar where the drinks were sitting, brings them back. And one of the, the kids in their party drinks one drink and ends up in the emergency room that night. And what had happened was somebody had spiked their drink. Right. And and right. they don't know. I, I don't know if it was fentanyl. I don't know this. I do know this. One drink and the kid was hospitalized. And so yeah. uh, here's the thing. If that's fentanyl, 
If that's fentanyl, and you're, we're hearing more and more cases of this, if they throw it in there, you understand a small dose could be fatal. And it's not, it has nothing to do with, you know, you putting it in your body because we are at a place now where we have patrol officers uh, and troopers um, touching fentanyl and dying or having severe health complications. You don't have to consciously ingest this. And that's a problem. No. That's why the no. so what factor is, that's why it's a problem for everybody. You could go no. into a restaurant, turn your back, and somebody could put this in your drink, and that may be it for you. And it does not Absolutely. take a whole lot. And- yeah, and, and and let me throw one further. And again, this isn't the the big. You know, I don't want to be the the big conspiracy theorist. But again, if we go back to who benefits, right? Think about that one person that had their drink spiked and what happened to them. Now think on a national security level with the amount of fentanyl. Like there, the Customs and Border Patrol are seizing truckloads of this stuff, right? So what happens if one of those trucks are bound for a water supply at a military base? What does that do for a fighting force? What does that do for a community that might be near an airport? What does that do? You know, so again, people think, you know, well, this doesn't have anything to do with me, you know, or I don't do drugs. You're right. But unfortunately, we live in a world, and you and I have seen this because of our federal background, which is one of the reasons why I continue to tell our local population in, in my community, it makes me uniquely qualified as above to my opponent with my federal service to be able to see these things bigger picture, right? And how to react to those things or how to be proactive to prevent them. But when you look at it in your your, your example of just one person with probably the a a minute pinprick of a sample of that drug in a, in a drink. Now think about a truckload in a water supply. You know, uh, you don't have to be a drug addict to be affected by it, you know, or break it down on a smaller scale. The, the addict who is an addict, just like the, the alcoholic that leaves a bar, you know, we don't see, I don't see mad and these mothers against drunk drivers you know, coming out in droves like they did in the 80s and 90s for this drug. And it's a shame because that same person that that takes a hit of uh, or, uh, you know, is smoking a joint with, with fentanyl lace joint that passes out behind the wheel and kills a family, kills a child. Yeah. You know, these things happen every day and being on the front lines, uh, working the road the way I do and have i've noticed it when i was in uniform at the pentagon mm-hmm. you know i noticed it and i we i i saw it on you know all the time where someone was just driving and they just passed out you know someone was parked in our parking lot forgot to put their car in park and they they took a hit of heroin but it was fentanyl laced and they passed out and we had to narcan them and the only reason we we were able to intercede for them is because they hit a light pole. You know, they passed out and their car was in, in uh, idle and it slowly hit. Thank God that that's all the more damage that was done. But yeah. that happens a person, all the yeah. time. Yep. Right. And, you know, you, so you don't have to be this, you know, I, you know, people, I hear that from people same the way you do. Well, I don't worry about that because I don't do drugs. Well, you don't have to be, but everybody was upset about the alcoholic that leaves a bar. Yeah. Well, you should be that way with drugs. Just and again, I again, I think I'm more sensitive to that because I've worked narcotics so long. 
but I just have seen the worst of the worst of what drug addiction does. Well, I think a lot of people forget because we we always look at the world through our lens. And I think that people forget that, um, you know, when you're talking about an alcoholic, when you're talking about a drug addict and, uh, you know, forget about even fentanyl, just somebody that have an addiction problem. There's about, on average, about seven other people that are directly impacted because of that person's use. And so, you know, why do we care about fentanyl? Why do we care about heroin? Why do we care about all these different, you know, people smoking marijuana? Because they're on the highway with you. (laughs) Hey, folks, I'll tell you this. If you've ever worked local law enforcement like like Steve and I had, and if you saw some of the the stuff that we see and what is is driving around out there on the highways unsupervised, you would probably never drive your car again if you really understood. That um, it, it is not. It, it's I'm telling you, there's a lot of people with mental illness and um, substance abuse issues, and sometimes the two combined, and they drive cars out on the right. highway with you right. and your kids. Don't ever forget that. Yes. And uh, that's you know, why and, it matters yes. to all of us. And it does, and and that's you know I I know just because I know you, Mike, and I know um, the sensitivity you have to that and, and for kids. And I have been, you know, uh, growing up, uh, with a single mother and, and, you know, literally on in, uh, I grew up in a, in a uh, subsidized housing area and I, I know what that's like. And, and I saw firsthand what addiction does. Mm -hmm. And so I am sensitive to that and, and it affects me with kids more than anything else. And I, um, I've seen, what an addict and and what their kids have to suffer through firsthand and it's it's a terrible terrible thing and if people the average person saw that um no amount of money or resources would stop them in order to help fight what's out on the street today yeah but i'm with you it surprises me that um you know all the groups that were big in the 80s aren't there now they're just not right. out there, and and I don't. Right. Well, I think what I think what it comes down to is there. There's always no matter what the movement is, there has to be somebody kind of like spurring the the movement along, and and you know maybe we just yes. don't have in this new generation the same sort of people that are, are motivated that haven't been affected in ways. You know, it, it's a combination of things. It, it's somebody has been negatively impacted by this. And then they have the motivation and the resources to um, bring the attention to everyone else. These right. are programs made the of people. But I can, platforms. Yeah. And, yes. But I will tell you this, that here in Virginia, you know, and, and Steve, I'm, I'm just speaking for myself here, but I'm sure you would support it. Um, that those of you that know me know that the whole addiction issue is a main plank in my platform. And uh, Virginia, as far as I'm concerned, if I get into the Virginia State Senate, will be leading the United States in the push to do something about this. We will lead Absolutely. the nation in yeah. this, and I will see to yeah. it that that's what we do. Because, uh, you know, we here in Virginia, we have the people to do this. We have people with the background to do it. And, and I just know this, Steve, that not only is it a big issue for me, but when I go around, um, well, I, I'll tell you the first night, let me just share this with you. The very first night that I met Mike Allers, and, and those of you um, that listen to this program may not know this, but one of the people that encouraged me to run for the Virginia State Senate was Mike Allers. Was Mike and, Allers, yeah. Yeah, and what had happened was I was being asked by another candidate to speak on her behalf because she had, it was getting late in the campaign and she would have multiple engagements 
per night. And, and she asked me to be at another location that she, she had to be at another location. And, uh, and I get up and there were uh, either the candidate or, and this is congressional candidates, either the candidate or one of the representatives was speaking. And there was a group of us, there might've been like six of us that were there. And right. Mike got up and he spoke. And, um, by the time I got up, I was the last one. Everybody else had covered just about every issue there was. And so I thought, okay, <laughs> and I'm going to get out. And I happened to, um, I happened to be driving out. This was in Culpeper. And on the news, they were talking about fentanyl and they were talking about, you know, what the problem that was. And there were some, uh, actually, I, I believe West Point cadets that had just, um, OD'd because they, uh, somehow came across something that was laced with fentanyl. So anyway, that was on my mind when I went into this, uh, this function and right. I just, and I only had about two, three minutes real quick, real quick kind of hit. And I just asked the audience, I said, who in here does not know someone or uh, let me rephrase it. it. What I said was who in this room knows someone that has a serious addiction issue. And Steve, do you know that every single person raised their hand? Every oh, single person that, yeah. in that room raised their hand. Yeah. And then I talked about, you know, uh, how how this needs to be a national priority. And this is one of the reasons why the uh, border security is um, secure. And, and everybody, that, like their heads were not, like everybody. And I can't think of one issue where you can look at a room and have every single person in that room go, yep, that's an issue for me. But that's one of them. Yeah. Right. And, and yet, you know, how, again, where do you see these large platforms, these people trying to get a large platform, you know, to battle that, you know, um, you know, I believe in, you know, it goes on to, uh, the subject of addiction, but, you know, 80, what is it, uh, Mike, 86% of the people that we deal with on calls for service have and some type of uh, mental health or addiction issue. Oh, I, so, yeah, yeah, I, I would um, definitely, yeah. From my yes. patrol days, if I yes. had to guesstimate when I was a patrol officer, uh, at least 80%, at least. Yeah, it's, yeah. And, and I believe that's the national data is it's like 86%. So when, when you, when you factor those numbers, that phenomenal number. So we have what, 350 million people in our country, right? 300 and whatever that, that the number is. So figure 85%. So you're talking close to 250 million people that are affected by some type of addiction, mm -hmm. right? Or mental health crisis. Yep. And, and, and there are, you're right in Virginia, there are, uh, facilities and there, there are, uh, there is help available. Um, but how do people get to that help? And that's where I believe law enforcement is going to come from and, and yeah. how, and which is one of the platforms I'm running on, which is why I, again, another reason why I think, um, it's just great the way we're able to put our, uh, campaigns together, but running on, uh, the help that a sheriff's department, a police department can do at a street level, because a lot of people just don't know where to go. There's plenty of help available. They just don't know how to get to it. Um, and, it and that needs to be addressed uh, in, a, in a much more significant way if 86% of the people yeah. you deal with are suffering from that issue. Why aren't we spending eighty six percent of our time helping that issue? You know? <laughs> I, I like that. Let's spend at least as much amount of time. Yeah, on that I mean, is the problem. No, and you're absolutely right. And and I'll tell you, uh, from the Senate side of the House, 
it's something that I will, it's a drum beat that I will constantly be uh, pounding. And in order to do that, and, and we've talked about this, and when we, you, Mike, and I did the round table, we talked about how the training for officers, we need to, we need to bolster that. Yeah, not, not every officer need, you know, we don't, Okay, those of you that wanted to send out social workers to domestic disputes, yeah. um, yes. that's only a good idea if you want a lot of dead social workers, okay? Correct. Uh, anybody that says that has never actually gone to a domestic dispute, okay? Now, but that's not to say, that is not to say that we couldn't provide more training and training to our officers, uh, some of the training that social workers get and allow, you know, de-escalation techniques and and learning about mental health issues, learning about addiction issues, and then more importantly, um, how when it's appropriate to place people in services as opposed to go, going to jail. We can do it. I do believe we can do a better job. I know we can do a better job than that. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that's something you support and Mike supports and I support and, and we're going to push for that. Again, another reason why you have to have people that have this background going into office because none of our opponents you me and mike none of our opponents have any background in that none no no and and you're right mike when it comes to and especially when it comes to training which is another one mm-hmm. of my big issues and I, and I have people telling me that and i did one of my community talks was based on training and and how important it is you know we in law enforcement you know every year you have to go and and unfortunately because money is being you know through that defund the movement issue that was going on but you know every year you you would as an officer you would have to go qualify right and you Mm -hmm. went to your training and that was part of your continuing education you did year over year but if if you recall how little training did we have on de-escalation techniques right we're trained to Uh, use a firearm yeah right yeah we we we, we, year over year here's how use your firearm and everybody's all up in arms about the amount of usage of firearms and the perceived usage that officers have right we both know that that those numbers don't really truly um tell the story but um we spend and people are okay with officers training with their weapon but how much more important is it if 86% of the time we're dealing with people, we need to use de-escalation techniques, but we spend zero time in training our officers on that technique. That's right. No, so, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. yeah. I, I never, never. But yet, you know, even no. as a, and I'll tell you this, Steve, you know, I have a lot of education. I just got another degree in addictions and co-occurring disorders, you know, so I have the education behind me. But yes, I, that aside, I, I but, but that aside, when I was a, a my first law enforcement job, I was a police officer in Washington D.C. Right, young guy yeah. out there. The only training I had, you know, military training, and then the the police academy. But even at that level, when I was at that stage of my career, I was painfully aware that most of the people I was dealing with had mental health issues. Right. And I thought to myself, and, and even then, I thought, you know, I've not received any training in this. My only option is put this guy in jail, put or put this right. gal in jail. I didn't have right. any other tools, and what yeah. we want to do is provide the the toolkit, you know, the, the the tool bag for our officers. 
we can expand that. And I know we can expand it. I mean, I have in yes. my mind, I taught at the FBI National Academy and I taught wellness and I taught on these subjects. Um, and I, I'm not saying that I personally will go out and do this training, although I'd love to do that because I, I love teaching. But yes. as far as formulating teams and Mike being a professional educator, and imagine that he was a police officer educator. Right. And I was, I taught at the FBI Academy and you've done training. And you imagine like the, um, the wealth of knowledge in being able to construct training teams to help, particularly our agencies in Virginia that are very rural. And, you know, it's not, Fairfax County is a big department. Arlington's a big department. The state police obviously have resources, but we have agencies in the state that have 25 officers. Either they don't right. have budgets and for big training. No, you know, I think the no. state should and help them. Absolutely. And, you know, when you and I were growing up, and, and I relate to this, and I tell, I was just relating this story. Someone asked me to come and speak to their group, and I was talking about this very subject. But I, you know, I came up differently. I mean, you and Mike both are very well educated, and you have the academic background. And some of my best friends have the, that I've served with have academic backgrounds. You know, I have, I do not. I have, you know, I, I don't have what would be equivalent to a bachelor's degree um, in college, but I'll tell you, I spent years in a small department and working with small departments where you didn't, the advantage you, that Arlington and DC and all those larger agencies have is they don't use a lot of these de-escalation techniques because their backup is seconds away, mm -hmm. right? They have someone they can rely on. Where I grew up, I may have only been the only deputy out that night. So if I was in a bad domestic situation and it was getting uh, violent very quickly, I had to verbally joust and de-escalate that scenario very quickly or else learn how to become Mike Tyson, right? And, yeah. you know, and that never ends well. Or maybe well. not go home. Matter what yeah. Right, mm -hmm. or not go home. And, and too many of my friends, and I can, and, and I mean this with all sincerity, too many of my friends and, and mentors that I have served with did not, uh, unfortunately. And I always said, I'm not going to be that, uh, you know, that's not going to happen to me, right? Dan mm -hmm. Bongino's number one golden rule, not get dead. Right? <laughs> yeah, so I, you, you that's, know, that's your goal you, when you're pleased. Right, don't yeah, die tonight. When you are, you know, don't, yeah. you know, don't get dead. And, and so you learned, I learned very quickly at a young age, how to de-escalate you know you we all know you never argue with a drunk you never argue with someone who's high you just don't argue with them you know you have to deal with them right and to keep things from getting violent and so uh, having that knowledge and bringing that knowledge to bear in in the in our community i think gives me a a rare and valuable skill and talent um to be able to do that and, and again knowing that knowing how much we need to bring that to our continuing education for our officers in Virginia. I've spoken with many sheriffs in the state of Virginia, um, several that are, are going to be coming out to support our campaign, several mm -hmm. that, you know, for obvious reasons, you know, in politics, everyone knows, you know, one particular office doesn't come out and speak against a, a sitting office holder. Right. But yet privately, they'll support you. Yeah. But knowing well, they've got to work together. Yes. Yes. They've got to work together. Yeah. But knowing that, knowing, you know, they all have expressed to me the belief that we will win our campaign and how excited they are to work with me on coalitions to 
educate and, and be able to teach these de-escalation techniques and bring this here in Virginia and to make Virginia a forerunner um, and a model for our law enforcement community. Um, and I think we have some of the most, the finest law enforcement agencies to be able to do that. We have officers and deputies that, that are incredible and, oh, no and doubt. want yeah. to do these things. But it's a culture change, right, Mike? It's, it's, yeah. it's going to be a culture change for us to be able to, to teach these things and, 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 and uh, get these officers and, and these, especially these younger officers that are coming in and deputies that are coming into the career. Um, you know, they've grown up on TV and they've grown up in, and that's if you find anybody wanting to come into this career field at all. That's I mean, another. It's, it's uh, getting hard, yeah, and maybe yeah. that's another episode. You yeah. Know, well, I and you I, I will tell time, you this: but. I have so many things in my mind that yes. I want to talk about, and I, I again, God willing, I get into the Virginia State Senate. It will be a constant theme of mine: service, helping others, yes. educating, getting better, and and I'm going to go on a campaign blitz you know talking to young people about why it's important for them to get into police forces and the sheriff's department and federal agencies and um they you know you are the protectors of the community and don't listen to the noise that's out there in the culture this is an honor it is and always has been an honorable profession and um it is it's a form of service you know you go into the military and you go into police work and, and it is, we are the protectors of the rest of the community and don't let anybody else uh, tell you otherwise. And we've That's got right. to recruit people. Now, here's the other thing, too. Um, I know um, the Governor Yunkin, you know, the current governor of Virginia, uh, I, I have no doubt he's, he's on board with all this. And now what he needs is, you know, a group of sheriffs across the state like yourself and he needs a, a legislature that will back him up because he can't do – he can have all the opinions and all the desires in the world, but he's got to have a legislature that's going to back him up and fund these things. That's important. Yes. And unless you – yes, and you've got to codify these things. Yeah. You know, it, these things have to be in the Virginia Code and, and mandated, you know, because, again, you're going to find, unfortunately, again, there's always um, people who – who want to take advantage of systems and monies that are out there, but you're going to have to codify specifics on what these monies are going to be used for. I remember uh, Governor Young and I was at a function for his right after, not long after he was elected and I was at one of his events and I, you know, I brought up the subject. He was talking about retention, which was one of the things big on my list is, you know, retention of, uh, trained deputies and officers and recruitment. And he was talking about how he's going to bring out this $30 million program. And he, he's all proud of this program. And I just simply said, well, governor, there's, there's something you can do with the stroke of a pen that costs absolutely nothing that would do wonders for recruitment and in this state. And I said, and recruiting some of the finest officers in the country. And that is just simply having a recidiv a, a, a program that um, you can bring in federal officers, officers from other states without sending them through a basic program. Mm -hmm. Because you can't take a 10-year uh, officer or deputy that's been in law enforcement for 10 years, all of a sudden a sheriff wants to hire this person because their family wants to move to this wonderful commonwealth, right? because I feel we've got one of the best states in, in the union, mm -hmm. but 
you know, they want to move here. Well, now all of a sudden you got to tell them, well, Hey, I got to put you back through a basic Academy again. <laughs> and this guy's been on the SWAT yeah. team. He's a detective and you got to send him, but yet that's the way it is in our state. Yeah. And I said, just simply let's, let's have a, a, an agreement with other states that allow us to, to, for officers to be able to do that. I said, and that costs zero dollars and what a wonderful thing it could be for our Commonwealth. And he thought that was the greatest idea. But yet, we've not acted on that yet because it needs it needs to be legislated not done in. That yet. And by the way, right. I just so people understand, I I'm I'm giggling because I I'm with you. I listen. Yeah, I, I went in. Yeah. I went into the FBI at the yeah. age of thirty two. Okay, yeah. at the age of thirty two, which is not all that old, right? But but you got to remember, yeah. I had already been through boot camp. Yeah. I've been through Navy yeah. flight yeah. school, right. <laughs> yeah. every other school yeah. associated yeah. with it. I went through a police academy, and now I'm in the FBI academy, which is basically you know the police academy, the FBI's equivalent. And I remember at the age right. of thirty two, actually starting the FBI academy, and here we are doing the physical fitness test, doing all the physical standards, doing you know all the yeah. different things you have to do. It's kind of like the FBI's right. version of boot camp. And I thought to myself. How many times do I need to do this? And and I also thought, I'm getting too old for this. Now, I was 32, and I was thinking, this is like my third, um, excluding flight school, which was a kind of right. a beating in yeah, of itself. I'm just talking about like basic yeah. training. I'm like, this is like yeah. my third go around in basic training. And here's my point, is that I'm with you 100%. If you get some veteran yeah. officer, and some officers have been in multiple agencies before they come here, they're like, right. no, I'm no, I'm 45 years old. I'm not going back through a police, a basic police academy. Not doing it. Not doing it. Well, I've been well, doing this job 15 years, not going to do it. <laughs> Yeah, here's here's one, and it's it's not a one. I'm not saying this for a one-upsmanship, but when I when I entered full service to go to the Pentagon, they sent the Fletzy. They wouldn't waive give me a waiver for my service in law enforcement. Right? I've mm -hmm. been to at that point three state basic. I I started with the Ohio State Patrol Academy, went to the Ohio uh, Basic Police Academy, went through the North Carolina Basic Police Academy, I, and so. At 52 years of age, hey, what you I do it again? To the Federal Law Enforcement <laughs> Academy yeah. for basic training. So I'm competing. At, you know, I think the next oldest person there was like 34. Um, but you know, and and I still came away with the physical fitness award, the honor graduate. That you know, I mean, I came away with every award that they had. But it, you know, the thing is, that's the the why have a, a qualified, well qualified deputy officer go through that and you think you're going to recruit the best of the best and you're not it's just it's again we're we're banging our head against the wall right and having people like you and mike allers and you know in in the senate that can codify these things because again the governor can can put out an edict or a a, a you know a, an administrative effort all he wants to until that's put into code and to where we can do that, I think it we're we're just defeating the purpose. Do you know what I mean? I oh think, yeah, no, I absolutely I think that's do. That's what we're doing is we're just defeating the purpose. But I I, I just I, I think that's going to be one of the things that you and I and will be able to to help in making Virginia better. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, if you're from the governor's office and you're listening to this, it's coming. Yes. This is a discussion <laughs> we're going to have, and we should have yes, it sir. because, no, real, really we do. I, I, I know, I actually know, 
I personally know people that have said agents. I've had FBI agents that have retired. There's a lot of FBI right. agents that retire because we're you know you're still right. fairly young when you retire. Yeah. And you, yeah. people are like, man, I'd love to go back to to being a cop, or maybe they were police officers like my myself. I was a yeah. police officer prior to going in the FBI, and they're like, you know what? I wouldn't mind going back to doing. I really enjoy the police department. They're like, ain't no way in hell I'm doing a basic. You know, I'm yeah. walking in <laughs> no. and guys screaming yeah. at me and doing push-ups and the run. No, not right. doing it. Not now. And there's many qualified federal because we did that. You know, I, we, you and I, similar backgrounds, right? We started at a local level, you know, and maybe a state level. And then we decided, you know, I, again, I, I go back to that when we just talked about, you know, my career path, I wanted to always be a federal agent. Um, Looking back, I don't know why that was that thing for me. I, I, I got to be honest so, with you. I, yeah. I have to confess, uh, my the yeah. most the most I enjoyed my law enforcement career was when I was a local cop. That I go. enjoyed there that the go. most. Yep. I just did. Yes, yes, and 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 I, where I felt I do the most good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I really feel that I helped someone more as a local deputy and a local officer. Because I feel that you 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 can you have more ability to help at that level than at the federal level. Federal level is just such a big monster that you can do more and better on, on the local level. So, yeah. which is one of the reasons why I want to you know finish my career as a sheriff um, and to help raise and, and develop this younger generation to teach them. Um, how law enforcement should be in, in, in our 21st century of, of yeah. law enforcement. So, um, but yes, I, I agree with you. So I think that's something that as we uh, progress in our political fields, I look so much forward to being able to do that. Yeah. Oh, no, it, it, the same here. The same here. Yeah. And I'm looking forward. I'm excited about it. And and I really yeah. I hope the governor's yeah. office is excited about this, too, because I, do too. Um, I hope they're know, listening. I hope someone in there is listening. So well, they should be listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, <laughs> they should. should be. <laughs> they should be. No, no, because it's important. This is yes. a hot topic for the community. And, you know, everybody I, I talk to wants to do something about law enforcement. Well, here you go. Um, we can do it. And our opponents. Right. Uh, they can talk. Well, my, my opponents are actually pretty good about talking about getting rid of the police. That's that's their solution. Right. But, yeah. But yeah. we know that uh, looking at the stats over the last couple of years, that that's uh, it, it's a solution, but it's not the solution. Um, it's or, the solution. or it's an, an no. option, but it's not the optimum op- no, option. Because, not even, not you know, here in D.C., where no. I worked, it's uh, the homicide rates up, I believe, last that I saw was like over 400 percent. Since 2020, 400%. Now, you know, D.C. is only 10 square miles, and it went up 400%. So, yeah, that's not working out too well. Um, The police are here, whether you like them or not. The police are here to stay. So let's do the best that we can. And um, you you can listen to my opponents and think, yeah, those are the people leading us. Or you can talk to people that actually um, understand law enforcement and, and could do something about it and and meld our um, our experiences into to helping people because uh, and I'm, I'm gonna point this out too because my my opponent I know and I don't know about yours but my opponent is saying that the police forces are a danger to minority communities what I'm here to tell you about when you look at when you break down the stats the um, the people that have suffered the most by far the most, uh, for doing what we've done to the police forces are minority communities. Oh, and absolutely. It, it is, yeah. it is uh, what we are talking about. If you're, if you're a, if you're a person of color listening to this podcast right now, 
it is in your best interest to have people like us in in leadership positions because your community was hurt the most and we're doing everything we can to because it's always people that are people of color and people that are um, underprivileged they will always suffer the most when there's ineffective oh absolutely and and the the lower socioeconomic levels and i and i you know growing up you know on the poor kid right i you know and that's well i just that's the way it was but i saw what that does and in in my career i and again it's so wild because i just spoke about this last night to a group of of folks but you know my goal is you know you get a uh, officer or deputy you know who's got this zealous approach to getting out in his community and making people think that he's trying to keep the community safe or she and they're out making traffic stops and they're writing tickets but who are you really writing tickets? where are you enforcing these laws chances are you're trying to to find easy pickings right we all try to find low-hanging fruit but here you are you're going to write a 150 dollars traffic ticket and this is just my take but you're going to write a 150 dollars traffic ticket to somebody who couldn't even afford to to renew their registration which may be your your presumption of the traffic stop to begin with but couldn't afford to renew their their registration and you think they're going to pay that $150 ticket, which leads to other things, which now they can't show up to court for because they don't want to be embarrassed or they can't afford the ticket. Now there's a warrant for their, and it leads to this big domino effect all because we're not truly, and and I'll throw that term out. We're not truly committing community policing. We're just out trying to get stats or we're out trying, you know, to show the public, well, we're doing this. But you're not really working with your community. You know, are you truly causing more harm than you are good? Right. And, and those, those are, are conversations that I, that I know in train any training I would provide. And I'm talking to young police officers. And again, with the heart of having been, you know, any officer I'm talking to, I've been in their shoes. You've been in their yes. shoes. And, yes. and this is years of experience and kind of looking back at my own career and saying, hey, guys, and, and gals, we can be smart about this and we need to target where the problems are and, and use judgment, you know, because I think that you're you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, writing that $150 ticket to a person that, you know, the reason why their car is in that condition and, and didn't pass inspections because they couldn't afford to get it fixed right. to begin with. Right. You know, but really, again, when yeah. we, we, we go back to the, the whole fentanyl and murder and, you know, homicide you rates go. are, right. and, and, you know, I remember, um, and I'll just share this with you and then we'll close out. Uh, I remember, because um, you talk about being stat driven, you know, there are no, I'm not aware of any departments that actually have like minimums that you have no. that you have no. to have but being police officers at least where i work we're all competitive we're all type a competitive people so it's not that the agency said you're going to go out and write x number of tickets but um but we all knew what you know like how many tickets you wrote how many felony arrests you had i mean everybody right. knows and how so you're kind of like i yes. want more than steve and steve's trying yeah. to beat me right yeah. it's more that yeah. than it is yeah. the uh you know because you're young and you want to get out there and do yeah. it but i remember you know uh just thinking to myself oh i've got to get my numbers up and so you know you're, you're making arrests you're kind of like drunk in, you know in dc you, you can't have an open container and you you know you make these arrests open container right 
And uh, I remember another officer saying to me, um, one of my mentors, he said to me, you know, every time you do that, he goes, you can, that's that's an arrestable offense in Washington, D.C., or at least it was at the time. You can do that. But, you know, Mike, we got, we got people with guns and knives running around here, killing people. Um, so every time you arrest one of these guys, you're off the street for about an hour and a half to two hours doing paperwork, um, and you're not out here actually stopping the violent stuff. And 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 I I changed the way that I operated after that, and I think that you know those those sorts of you know um, discussions with police officers in the academies and and in the departments those are good conversations to have to make sure that our officers are um, you know focusing yes. again limited resources but 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 trying to be as effective as you can with what you have. Right, being productive versus being busy. You know, again, I, I <laughs> yeah. go back to business ownership. Right, yeah. when I owned a business, I wanted to be productive. I didn't care about being busy. I'd rather be productive. Mm-hmm. And and it's the same thing as for a deputy or or an officer. Mm-hmm. You know, are you truly being productive? And and you know, uh, those are the areas I want to help with this new generation into being productive. Uh, law enforcement officers and in, in with their careers and how to be productive versus just busy. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to focus our sheriff's department on being productive in our community. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean you're out making arrests means you're being productive in your community and making your community better. That's right. And, and that's what it's all about in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, Steve, you know, I always enjoy talking with you. And Absolutely. great conversation. Uh, once again, let know everybody or let everybody know how they can get hold of you on social media, and we'll close it sure, out. Sure, thank you. Uh-huh. Um, they can uh, go directly to smaxwellforsheriff.com. That's smaxwellforsheriff.com. And and if I may, Mike, I, I say yeah. that you know people hear politicians give their websites directly. You know, a lot of times, well, conservative, you know, people in politics. Um, and that's because we all know about social media and we've heard the, i.e. the Twitter thing. And again, this might be for another day, but, you know, by trying to Google someone's website or go to find someone on a website, they can be redirected, right? Yeah. And so we've found that a lot of time these social websites are doing that. They're they're redirecting people from getting to where their conservative person might be that they're trying to reach. So that's why everybody says go directly Type in your URL at maxwellforsheriff.com versus try to find me through a through a search engine. Um, but uh, or you can go to our Facebook, elect Maxwell Sheriff dot, uh, at Facebook. That's elect Maxwell Sheriff. Um, those are two of the best ways of doing that. Uh, give us a volunteer. Get on our website. Volunteer. Give a small donation. Help us in our our fight to, for these changes you and I are talking about. And I encourage people to do that for you as well. Uh, unfortunately we are running campaigns and campaigns are run on money. So any little bit helps and I appreciate everybody's time and effort and what they're doing for us. Yeah. And, and as we, we mentioned in the last podcast too, don't think that your donation is, has to be large. I mean, we understand, you know, money's tight. Every five, you got $5, send it. Uh, you know, we can do, we can do things with $5, $10, you know, whatever you're comfortable with. But, um, you know, and that's the, the distasteful part of this. You know, none of us even want to, trust me, I don't, the, the, yeah. le- the least favorite yeah. part of this business is asking for money, but, but it is a reality. So um, if Absolutely. you can, uh, it's in your heart, do what you can. We really do go. appreciate it. 
thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate your time, and thanks for all the listeners. And thank you. And and everybody, thanks again for uh, tuning in to the Mike Van Meter Show. Uh, check out Steve Maxwell. He's going to be your next sheriff down there in Spotsylvania County, and uh, it's going to be great. It's, it's going to be great, and I am so proud of Steve and um, and Steve, the just the generosity of your time coming on the program. Really do appreciate it. This is a guy that gets out. He If you don't know Steve, he gets out in the community. Uh, he does online um, forums and um, community meetings once a month on his Facebook site. Check that out. I mean, this guy really makes himself available to the public, and he understands what servant leadership is all about. So get out there, support him. And uh, we're going to, I look forward to seeing you down there in the sheriff's office. All right. Absolutely. And I, Thanks, and you won't sure. be Steve anymore. I'll have to refer to you as sheriff. So, <laughs> yeah, but I'm no, looking forward to Steve. that. <laughs> oh, no, it'll be sheriff Thanks, because it's, yeah. no, you will have earned it and, and you deserve the respect, Steve. Well, so, you. you guys, everybody, you take care of yourselves and we will be talking with you soon. And this is Mike Van Meter with Mike Van Meter Show. And see you next time. Take care. <laughs>